in the names of God, creator, redeemer, sustainer. Amen. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The gospel passage we hear today comes from a set of passages that are often referred to as the hard sayings of Jesus. These are the passages that don't offer wonderful metaphors about the abiding and overwhelming love of the creator of the universe for frequently errant humanity, or stories of good shepherds and lost lambs being brought back to the flock, or children being welcomed into the kingdom of heaven as particularly beloved of the Almighty. No healing miracles, no blessings, no comfortable words. These are the stories that demanded much of the audience contained within the narrative itself. The people Rabbi Jesus is directly addressing. They demand even more of those who listen to the narrative, to those who first heard the recounting of the story when the gospel we know as Mark was a piece of performance art declaimed in front of groups of people. It demands much from a congregation like us, hearing it two millennia later. The Jesus portrayed in this gospel story is resolute and determined, brutally honest in his assessment of his own prospects in the very near term, and asking hard things from those who would be his followers. This is the Jesus who sets his face towards Jerusalem, knowing full well he is on a collision course with the Roman forces of occupation, as well as the hierarchy of the temple. He has no illusions about what will happen over the next few weeks, and a startlingly calm faith that his execution will not be the last word in this story, in his story. And as he is revealing all this to his followers, he invites them to join him on this journey. That invitation offers no promises of paradise or heavenly reward or pastures of plenty. He offers them self-denial, sacrifice, and the very real possibility of following him to execution. The cross of which he speaks held a huge symbolic valence for the original audience contained within this narrative. It was not yet the symbol of the Jesus movement, a visual representation denoting the triumph of life over death. It was at that moment a symbol of shame, pain, and humiliation. It was the execution method of choice used by Rome for dangerous political criminals and opponents of the regime. Crucifixion was a long and painful way to die and was always done in full view of the public. It was an object lesson of what resistance to Rome meant. And among the occupied people, it connoted resistance despite all odds of failure. Since those being crucified were usually forced to carry the crossbar of the cross to the place of execution, taking up your cross was a metaphor for willingly acknowledging that path of resistance and rebellion and its consequences. For those of us who have heard the gospel passage subsequently, it has been put to many uses over the millennia since it was first composed. During the Crusades, it was a favorite passage for itinerant Franciscan and Dominican preachers who were recruiting for the forces being sent to invade and conquer Palestine. While those religious orders were sent out by the church hierarchy to whip up enthusiasm and recruits for the Crusades, and were especially good at doing so, local clergy were also admonished to preach on the need to enlist and win back the Holy Land. 
Several manuals of the era outlined forms of sermons that were felt to be particularly useful at fanning the flames of devotion and enlistment. This gospel passage was identified as one that was suited to the task of inspiring people. During the age of exploration and conquest, it was equally used by preachers and theologians as a justification for the collaboration between colonizers and missionaries, particularly into lands where the fervent evangelization of indigenous peoples was resisted. The glory of the mission fields and its opportunity for pious martyrdom was often linked to this passage of scripture. At the height of the British Empire, the Church Mission Society, from the evangelical wing of the Anglican Church, and the Society for the Propagation of Gospel in Foreign Parts, from the High Church wing, both used this passage of scripture as inspiration and justification for their missionary work. Returned missionaries from both groups frequently called this passage, cited this passage in their sermons to parishes across England as they went around raising funds and recruiting new missionaries. And while these redoubtable clergy and laypeople were planning on winning souls for Jesus across the empire Britain had, had subjugated, it must also be pointed out that these missionary societies were funded by sugar plantations they owned in the West Indies, whose work was done by enslaved people. So this passage admonishing us to take up our cross has a checkered past, to say the least and has been used to justify and sanctify some of the more egregious moments in our history as a body and as a people. How then, in the midst of a pandemic and all that it has exposed of the structural racism and profound injustice inherent in our systems of medicine, law, education, and governance, are we to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this passage? I think if we go back to the text itself, we may find our way to an understanding of this harsh passage. First, the context. This story occurs just after recounting the moment when Jesus asks his followers, who do people say I am? And then asks them, who do you say I am? Impetuous Peter blurts out, you are the Christ. Jesus admonishes them to tell no one. Just after this story, which forms today's gospel, the story of the transfiguration is told. So this story is bracketed between the first acknowledgement by members of the Jesus movement of his identity and the later physical manifestation of that identity as the transfigured Jesus. This passage then can be argued to show the action that underpins the identity. If the identity is a noun, then this passage shows the verb, which is the action that justifies the noun, the identity. Jesus is the Messiah, this passage tells us, not because of a declaration of his nature or a vision in front of dazzled eyes, but because of the actions he is about to undertake. It, it, it is his propulsion towards a confrontation with Rome that proves and justifies the claims of identity. Put another way, this passage in what brackets us shows the tension between what we believe and what we do. As the Flemish theologian Edouard Schielebeck pointed out, the bracketing passages establish what is orthodoxy, right belief. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He is the beloved of God. This passage establishes orthopraxy, right action. Jesus is the prophet, the rabbi, the man who will confront the forces of empire, might, oppression, death itself on our behalf, regardless of the cost. 
In Schillebeck's theology, right action is always more important than right belief. Who people say you are matters less than what people see you do, what people see you willing to do. And so how then do we apply this in our particular moment? The cross of which Jesus speaks was a real and tangible instrument of torture, oppression, and control. It was also a material thing of its time. In a symbolic, perhaps metaphoric way, the cross represents anything that subjugates us, makes us afraid of speaking the truth, forces us to pretend that we don't see what is going on. The cross, in Jesus' use of its image in this passage, is anything that leads us to deny the machinery and mechanisms of oppression that other people are experiencing in the vain hope that such denial will mean the oppression and subjugation will pass over us. If we deny the cross in that sense, we live in the delusion that we can make the oppressor go after someone else and leave us alone. In a few short weeks, Peter will deny the cross when he says, I don't know the man of whom you speak. To take up the cross then is Jesus' invitation to join him in both acknowledging a profound solidarity with everyone and anyone suffering under the yoke of oppression and freeing yourself from the fear of shame and humiliation and loss, which is the means and methods the oppressor uses to get you to engage in your own oppression. To take up the cross is to see clearly and without delusion. To take up the cross is to free yourself. This pandemic has laid bare to anyone who would see the profound injustices upon which this society is built. To look away is to continue to engage in the victimization of other people that has been perpetuated in our names under the guise of business as usual and the way things work. We profess to be a society that loves its children. I would submit that when you seek evidence that supports that contention, you can be hard-pressed to find it. How can a society that loves children separate immigrant children from their parents and incarcerate them under shameful conditions? Remember, this Jesus we so often profess to love and follow was once such a child, the offspring of immigrants who crossed a border to escape the violence perpetrated by a mad and oppressive king. How can a society that loves its children permit the shambles that is our child mental health system to continue? I just came off a two-week tour of duty as the attending physician on our inpatient child neurology service at Boston Children's Hospital. We have more than 35 children across that hospital who have been languishing on medical wards and in the emergency department waiting for beds in a psychiatric facility, many for longer than a month. This incarceration at the border and the sequestration of children without real and effective treatment is done in our names. As followers of this Jesus, we have to take up our cross and confront this profoundly evil system of childhood imprisonment, since it can only be called that, and demand better. This is one of the areas of the country that has a huge concentration of medical institutions. The technology that led to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines was developed here, and the Johnson and Johnson vaccine was developed in its entirety here. And yet we have done a woefully inadequate job of vaccinating the people of the Commonwealth. The system of booking an appointment by a barely functioning website is a caricature of systemic injustice and racism. 
Access is determined by bandwidth and technology and favors the wealthy over the poor. The fits and starts of distribution, the failure to give adequate supplies of vaccine to those structures and services best poised to help the most vulnerable, the mistrust which certain communities demonstrate since there is nothing in the behavior of our healthcare system towards them in the past that would be worthy of trust in the present. All this shows how profoundly broken this system is, how deeply unfair and unjust it is in its standard operating procedures. Vaccines don't save people, vaccinations save people. The physical entity of a vaccine is irrelevant or worse without right action. This system is built upon our acquiescence and smug assurance that by some measure we have the best healthcare system in the world. I would submit that we must take up our cross and demand a system that is available, accessible, and respectful of every human being within our borders without exception. If we follow this Jesus, he reminds us that what we do to the least of any, we do to him. We cannot rest until we have a system that is worthy of that instruction, that demand. Our education system, which has always been ridden with profound inequality and injustice, can be rightly called a shambles in this moment. Every inconsistency, every unfairness, every lack of resource has now been amplified by orders of magnitude. We are losing an entire generation of school children for whom virtual learning was unlikely to work for whom the and for whom the digital divide has accelerated this loss, for whom the social contact and support we know is necessary for a child's well-being and growth has been lost. And all of all the vocations we have prioritized for vaccination, in the vast majority of the places in this country, teachers are not among them. If we follow this Jesus, who had an especially fond place in his huge and magnanimous heart for children, then we must take up our cross and demand better for children now. A species that neglects its offspring is doomed. This Jesus asks us to follow him into a very uncomfortable place. It isn't safe in the, world, in the way the world thinks of safety. It isn't wise in the way the world thinks of wisdom. But he asks us, what does it profit you to gain the whole world and forfeit your real life? The life of solidarity with others. The life of seeing the world as it is and being part of the struggle to remake it. To build Jerusalem, as William Blake put it, among these dark satanic mills. Someday, we will all stand somehow before the high throne. We will have to account for our lives and how we live them. None of us, I wager, wanted to live through one of the largest pandemics seen in the world since the Black Death. None of us, however, had a choice in that. But we do have choices now about how we will live and conduct ourselves and what we will do to rebuild this badly battered planet and this fragile land. We will, will we take up our cross in whatever form we find it, in whatever form it finds us, and follow Jesus wherever that leads? How will we, each and every one of us, build Jerusalem among these dark satanic mills? For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me.
Amen.